welcome to episode 452 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook, and it is week one of the satanic rites of January here on Monster Kid Radio. We are kicking off this five-week event here on MKR by talking about one of my favorite Val Luton films. That movie is The Seventh Victim. I'm going to be joined by friend of the show, returning guest, Kenneth Height. Ken and I are going to talk about the Val Luton film, and a number of other things are going to come up during that conversation. The song that you're hearing right now comes from the band The Wood Surfers. They are a surf band based out of Brazil. The song is called Psycho Nude. It is from their album, Wood Surfers. You can find them over at woodsurfersbrazil.bandcamp.com. Of course, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes so you can go and pick it up yourself when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. Yeah, so like I said, Ken Height is coming back to the show to talk about The Seventh Victim. There is something special about Val Luton films, and I can't wait to get into this conversation with Ken. Well, I actually already had the conversation with Ken, so I can't wait for you to get into the conversation with Ken and I when we talk about this incredible film. Of course, we also have Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories and Kenny Has a Look and Famous Monsters of Filmland. That's all coming up. Before we get too much further into things, I'd like to let you know that this upcoming weekend will be the first appearance of myself and or Monster Kid Radio, I guess we're kind of a package deal. So Monster Kid Radio makes its first appearance of the year, its first live appearance at an event at Fandom PDX. You can find out more about Fandom PDX at fandompdx.com. Go to the guests page and, well, you'll see me there. Monster Kid Radio is a guest and or featured talent. I'm not exactly sure which category I'm in, but bottom line is I'm going to be at the event and I'm going to be moderating a panel with friends of the show, Chris McMillan and David Heath. We're going to be talking about classic science fiction movies that still have something to say to modern audiences, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. So if you're going to be in the area at Fandom PDX, it's taking place here in Portland at the Sheridan Portland Airport Hotel, Saturday, Sunday. I'd love to see you. Event parking is free. Tickets at the door for a weekend pass is $35. Saturday only is $25. Sunday only is $20. Unfortunately, I don't know what day my panel is going to be on because that part of the schedule is still under construction. I know it's happening at 3 p.m. One of those days. Stay tuned to MonsterKidRadio.net or MonsterKidRadio on Facebook or Twitter because as soon as I know something, you'll know something about what day we'll be doing the panel. I'm excited for this. Should be a good time just like the rest of this episode, which we're going to get to right about now. This is your horror host, Mr. Lobo. Follow me, if you dare, into the old dark house, a real haunted house that served as the location for the Chestburster Mystery House for Mr. Lobo's Cinema Insomnia Haunted House Special. In fact, the only way to survive this and to protect yourself from sheer madness is to put on your scaredy vision glasses, okay? Now, if, if mom or dad can't afford the scaredy vision glasses, that's okay. We, we won't judge you. All you need to do is put your hands over your face like this and peek through your fingers. And that should protect you from like, I don't know, 
35, 40% of the terror. Um, we've got our own group of paranoid investigators, or what I like to call real fake ghostbusters, uh, comprised entirely of horror movie host pals of mine. Dick Dizel, who was better known as uh, Count Gordoval from Creature Feature. Jerry Moore, who is better known to the world as Carlos Borloff from Monster Madhouse. John Dimes, who is better known as Dr. Sarcophagi. And of course, Rich Cos of Spanguli fame. Let me say that one more time, of Spanguli fame. Uh, please uh, come with us on this mystery. We weave through a whole bunch of weirdness, uh, including uh, cartoons and and trailers and clips from horror movies. It's a level of strangeness not yet achieved in cinema. So go over to oldies.com and pick up Mr. Lobo's Cinema Insomnia Haunted House Special. Don't say we didn't warn you. From the coldest and darkest regions of the sea, as old as time itself, comes the most terrifying monster the world has ever seen. The Creature! <laughs> Slithering over the face of the earth came a monster from beyond the stars. Inhuman, indestructible, life on this planet was doomed when it conquered the world! <laughs> These will be the strangest, most terrifying motion pictures you have ever seen. You will see monsters from a nightmare. The most horrifying creatures that ever made you wake up screaming. <coughs> the She-Creatures! And it conquered the world! Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Double Evil Shock Hits with the most fearsome females in horror history. Twice the spine-chilling, heart-stopping terror. Twins of Evil and Hands of the Ripper. Rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Welcome to Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories, created especially for Monster Kid Radio. My name is Jerry Green. In this segment, I'm going to tell you a story from EC Horror Comics. Today's story is The Tunnel of Terror. It's from The Haunt of Fear, number four, the November-December issue from 1950. It was written by Bill Gaines and Al Feldstein, and the art was by Jack Kamen. So sit back and relax while I tell this unappetizing tale. Linda Cross, a young single woman, took her troubled brother Paul to Mexico. She wanted him to get away from his friends and lifestyle of drinking and carousing that had seriously hurt his health and caused him to have a nervous breakdown. She returned to his room after shopping to find Paul gone. Where could he be? She searched high and low for him and finally went to the police station to see if they could help. They had no information on his whereabouts. A police officer rushed into the station and announced there was a dead man found at the nightclub, the tunnel. He was an American that was found dead and partially devoured as if by a wild animal. Linda and the chief of police went to the club to see if the dead American was Paul. When they arrived, Linda saw the body and it was not Paul. Whew. Linda recognized the strange club as one that Paul might come to. 
she wanted to look around and was directed to a hatch in the floor that led to the real club. She descended the stairs and asked the maitre d' if he had seen Paul. He showed her some of the corpses they had on display as decoration at this club, nice club, and asked if any of these were her brother. They weren't. Just then, a horrible scream came from deep inside the tunnels. Another American had been killed and partially devoured. Linda ran to see who it was and found that it wasn't Paul either. Then she looked up, and deep in the darkness, she spied her brother. Paul, Paul, it's me, she cried out, but he ran deeper into the darkness. Linda grabbed a torch and followed him. She finally found Paul and told him that he didn't have to run anymore. He was safe. Suddenly, he lunged at her and bit her hand. She realized he bit at her like a wild animal. Oh no, it's he who's been doing all of this killing. Linda's brother Paul is a fiendish cannibal killer, and he started to come towards her. The end. I hope you enjoyed that ghoulish story. This is an interesting one. For anyone that has any experience with EC horror stories, it was pretty clear early on that Paul was the cannibal, so there wasn't a big surprise twist ending this time. Paul did leave a pretty good trail of victims, which got a little repetitive, but seeing poor Linda pursuing the truth about her brother, even when we know what's going on, was entertaining. And what is it with EC horror and cannibalism? Hmm. Jack Kamen's art is fantastic. Linda is gorgeous with reddish-blonde hair and a wide-eyed, perplexed expression. Paul is a blonde, good-looking, all-American guy. His downfall would come as a surprise if this wasn't an EC book. The sequence where Linda realizes her brother has bitten her is fantastic. Her hand is at her forehead and her face is full of shadows. The next panel is a tight close-up of her face showing her horror. Great stuff. If you're interested in a copy of The Vault of Horror Volume 1, the book can be purchased on Amazon, and you can find a link to buy it on the MKR website. I hope you enjoyed the story. My name is Jerry Green, and you can listen to my podcast on the Frenzy feed. On Wednesday, we have the Professor Frenzy show where we talk about new indie comics, and on Monday, we have Memory Minute Monday, a nostalgia podcast. And on Sunday, listen to Frenzy Peace Theater where we recap and discuss classic comic book stories. You can also catch me on Twitter at Professor Frenzy and search for Professor Frenzy on YouTube, where you can find the Professor Frenzy show and some exciting projects we have coming up. Stay tuned and thanks for listening. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Professor Frenzy, it's a show. Professor Frenzy, show. Join this safari into a green hell of horror in search of a secret fortune in diamonds and gold. I want that money so bad that every time I close my eyes, I can see it. Marla English, a woman possessed by a passion for wealth. Tom Conway, a man maddened by his lust for power. Touch Connors, a white hunter entrapped by an adventuress's black heart. Lance Fuller, Victimized by desire. (laughs) Mary Ellen Kay, a blonde captive in the darkness of Voodoo Land. Not man, not beast, but a combination of the best of each. (laughs) Voodoo Woman, 
An experience in terror that'll tear your nerves to shreds. Secrets torn from the earth as old as the earth. Combining voodoo witchery with the most advanced of medical sciences to create before your very eyes Voodoo Woman. Voodoo Woman. Across the centuries comes this exciting story of a modern girl cursed by an ancient legend. The legend of the cat people. Women whose kiss means death, whose love turns them into vicious, snarling beasts of prey. I've been followed by something that was not human, something that attempted to take my life. I believe that was the cat form of Irena. Why should she wish to harm you? Because I'm in love with her husband. It's shut, Belle. Just a minute ago, it was open. Fuck. Leave us, Irena. Hello there, Monster Kid Radioheads. This is Kenny with a look at famous monsters of Filmland. Today's film, The Seventh Victim, was never featured in FM, but one of its stars was mentioned. 1967 was a sad time for Monster Kids and pop culture fans, as eight favorites passed away that year. Basil Rathbone, writer Charles Beaumont, Nelson Eddy, Misha Auer, Barbara Payton, Spencer Tracy and Walt Disney were all featured in a joint obituary found in Famous Monsters 47 from September of 1967, together with today's male lead, Tom Conway. Here's what was said about him. Tom Conway, born in Russia, 15th of September, 1904, died 22nd of April, 1967, made 280 movies during his 25-year acting career, including I Walked With a Zombie, She-Creature, Voodoo Woman, Twelve to the Moon, Seventh Victim, and The Cat People. Real name, Thomas Charles Sanders, brother of George Sanders. That is all for this edition of A Look at Famous Monsters. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios and feliz año nuevo. In 1972, American TV networks canceled 12 TV shows for crimes they didn't commit. These shows were promptly forgotten by the public and faded into obscurity. Today, Chris Cooling researches these shows for a podcast. If there's a TV show that no one else remembers, and if you have earbuds, maybe you can listen to Forgotten TV. What was the mystery of... The Crypt of the Living Dead. This tomb must weigh three tons. Don't. She's in there. Crypt of the Living Dead. Rated PG.
This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night, ah, I mean monster kids, can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing. Monster Kid Radio listeners, I have got a game designer, an author, a Lovecraft fan, a friend of mine, Kenneth Height, here to join me to talk about a movie. Ken, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. Hey, thanks for having me back. Number two, third time I become a beloved guest or a special guest or a recurring guest. Ooh. So I can't wait. Well, I have to start thinking about a movie uh, to, to yeah, have you back absolutely. on or, or a topic yeah. or something. But that's kidding way ahead of ourselves let's talk about this week's movie yes let's do it a while back you mentioned this film the seventh victim uh, i think in passing at the lovecraft film festival i think it's probably where most of our movie conversations happen it's where most of our conversations happen in fairness Derek. that's that's true that's true i occasionally see you at a different convention here and there but yeah i think so yeah and this one came up and and it's always been in the back of my mind because I love Val Luton. I really love all of his films, his especially his earlier work. I'm just adore. And this is one of the the more offbeat ones, uh, mm-hmm. I feel like. And you know, when I decided to do this themed month, I thought this is a great movie to pick. Are you overly familiar with this film? Is this something that you've been a fan of for a long time? I grew up right as a Val Luton fan without knowing I was a Val Luton fan because I thought Cat People was the bomb. And then I discovered that uh, there were more movies sort of like that. And I think they probably ran in rotation. But it wasn't until I got the box set of the Val Luton films uh, that Warner Brothers put out a little while ago. And they did a box set of all the Val Luton horror movies. And I had seen, like I say, Cat People and Curse the Cat People. And I'd seen Leopard Man probably. And maybe I Walked with a Zombie. I want to say I, I may have seen that actually on the on the big screen and in a revival at some point or other. Nice. And then it was watching the rest of them that I saw seventh victim. And when you just sort of come to seventh victim cold and you don't know anything about it, it plays. And I guess we'll get into it as this sort of weird noir thing. And I'm watching it and it just is pit after pit dropping out from under you because I've come to it completely cold. I have no idea what the theme of the movie is, what the movie is about. It just blew my mind. First of all, it's an amazing technical achievement. And second of all, for 1943, hell, for now, it is a remarkable philosophical statement to put in a movie. I'll say that. I guess we'll be spoiling it plenty later on. But that really impressed me. That hit me just right up the side of the head that someone would have the sheer guts to say that and then make a movie of that in 1943, plus all of the other sort of great elements of it. And I just loved seeing Dr. Judd come back from uh, cat people. I thought that he was desperately uh, missed by me anyway. I thought that he's a, a, a great oily hero villainy villain. And it was lovely to see his earlier outing, I guess, chronologically in the Lewis Judd cycle. Yeah. This is kind of sort of a, a I don't know if it's a prequel per se, but it, it is 
the return of Dr. Judd, even though it happens before the cat people because of what happens to Dr. Judd in cat people, which from what I understand was not really the original intent. I don't know at what point the character became Dr. Judd, but I'm so glad he did because I love that character and I love Tom Conway, that guy. I've been watching a lot of the Falcon movies. I love him in those. Uh, I just Mm -hmm. am a big fan of this guy and to see him in this and taking on a more, I don't know, active role on the side of good kind of was nice. I liked it. I liked it. You know, for me with the Val Luton films, I've seen this once before years ago. And it's one of those things where I saw it and I didn't really plug it into uh, my brain as this is a, one of my favorite movies, but I recently rewatched it specifically for this recording. I watched it last night. In fact, and I was blown away. Val Luton has this effect on me where whatever the most recent Val Luton film I've seen, that one's my favorite. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's that effect that his movies have to put you in the moment of watching them, even if you're trying to watch it at a remove, right? You mm-hmm. you can't half watch the Val Luton film. No. Like, I can I can freaking half watch Goodfellas, which is an amazing movie, and it can be just sort of playing, and then I'll turn my head, and it's like, hey, Paul Sorvino, nice to see you. And then I go on with my business. But if Val Luton starts, I'm in it. I'm there. It just grabs you. You get yeah. lost in the shadows and you get lost in the camera composition and mm-hmm. the story, the dialogue, the storytelling that's happening here. Val Luton has a very, um, a fairy tale like way of wrapping his stories around you. There, there's just something yeah. about them that bring you in. While also being very naturalistic. Yes. There's nothing yes. sensationalistic about a Val Luton film. They could be straight stories and then you sort of reveal this sort of vertiginous drop philosophically or uh, supernaturally, depending more often a than B the way that he directed his directors to direct um, (laughs) with very quiet, understated dialogue that no one, I think there's maybe one or two shouts in any given Val Luton film. Mostly people are just talking in a normal voice, even on, on relatively important things, because that's how people normally do talk. Mm-hmm. It's not an actorly film in any way, although the acting is, of course, uh, very important in it. But it's very naturalistic in that way, um, and and certainly Seventh Victim is is even the most so because there's uh, very little, even covertly supernatural in it. Right, and even the the one of the lead actresses, Kim Hunter, you know, her performance is so tamped down it feels like a real person going through this as opposed to somebody performing these actions and going through the movements and you watched the commentary track last night i watched it this morning and mm-hmm. that's the commentary and i forget his name off the top of my head i'll look it up and drop it in the show notes later he makes a point that she was told that as a stage actress she needs to kind of tone it down because the film's going to blow everything up so that choice really just kind of fit right in there right right in the sweet spot uh for that naturalistic kind of approach but still somebody that is portraying and conveying these incredible emotions and stories to us i just this movie man i i'm getting a little tongue-tied because i enjoyed so many elements of it so so when you sat back to rewatch this yeah were you like well this is ken taking me on another stupid uh, <laughs> uh wild goose chase i'll just do it to keep him happy and then we're surprised by how good it was because the first time you saw it, had you registered it or what is it just like another Val Luton to you? And then you 
uh, were reminded by rewatching it. I'm kind of curious because you obviously have a deep bench of horror experience. So when I first saw this film, uh, it was years ago and it was before I had really kind of embraced this monster kid side of myself. So it, you know, I knew it was Val Luton. I knew Val Luton was important in the history of the genre and he was a, a solid filmmaker. It wasn't one that really kind of connected with me on in the way like cat people did, because like you said, the supernatural elements are almost none. And it's like, ah, you know, it's, it's a movie. It's Val Luton. It looks good, but I want a monster. I want a zombie. You know, I wanted something like that. This time when I watched it, I had forgotten the ending. Oh my God. Go. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I was, I was pretty shocked. Now I was, I loved the movie from start to finish. I really enjoyed it. And it wasn't just a, oh, got to do another one with Ken. It was really a, a treat to revisit it. And then the ending hits me. I'm like, oh, wow. That, um, <laughs> that is bleak. That is yeah. bleak, but, but so true. It's, and it's an amazing accomplishment that, that Val Luton wanted that decided that was where the movie was going, sets it up and then follows through and doesn't flinch and is even forced. Uh, and this is just sheer luck of the draw because of course it was shot longer and then they had to cut scenes out of it because it was no longer an A picture that um, they don't have to put a capper on it. There's no part where anyone comes and reassures you that everything's going to be all right and that love will conquer all or any of that. That literally the last shot of the film is the ending and there you go. Thank you for playing. Welcome to Earth. Yeah. I was at least <laughs> expecting Dr. Judd to come up and say something. You know, somebody right. say something. Nope. The nope. end. Sorry. Thanks for watching, everybody. Yeah. Hope you feel good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I figured um, in, in the original ending, a shot Joel's, um, uh, Jason does sort of a little uh, a capper speech while he stands at the feet of Dante and Beatrice uh, and is like, um, well, you know, love will win out, but I personally will not. And that's how it is. If only I were Cyrano. And there we go, the end of the movie. And that would have, I don't say ruined it, because it still would have been a Valutin film, but it would have made it less of a hammer blow mm -hmm. of a movie. And that movie depends, I think, a lot on the uncompromising nature of the story it tells. And I don't know if we're going to go into it. I don't know if we're going to spoiler it. I mean, people right now are, what, um, uh, a quarter of the way into the podcast or whatever, and they don't know how it ends, maybe. What's our policy on this? I mean, it's from 1943. I feel like anyone should have seen it already. But yeah. the ending is so great. <laughs> the ending is great. So maybe let's avoid the, the specific actions of the end. But it is pretty boom, done, yeah. lights uh -huh. out, see ya. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it was really, really well done. It's one of those movies that when I watch a movie for the show, I'm, I'm constantly playing in my head. Is this something my wife would enjoy? Because she doesn't go for, you know, the big cheesy monster stuff that I go for. She doesn't go for the low budget stuff. Uh, you know, I don't think I could show her any of the Bela Lugosi monogram pictures, for example. I, I love those films. <laughs> well, you know, and I, and I love them, but I also yeah. know the issues. I could probably yeah. get away with showing her something, some of the Vincent Price films, that sort of thing. I think she would really like this one because it does engage different parts of me as a monster kid, as a film watcher, mm -hmm. as a creative even. I mean, it does engage different parts, and I think it's something my wife would enjoy. Uh, so, I mean, that immediately elevates the film for me <laughs> yeah well obviously there, there's just a lot going on here just underneath the surface without feeling like there's a lot going on which 
you know, we talk about they, you know, Val Luton being the guy mm-hmm. behind it, but his director, Mark Robeson, uh, if not for him, I don't know if it would have worked the same way because he was primarily an editor. So he was kind of, right. I can't imagine he couldn't help, but shoot for the edit. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the interesting things about Mark Robeson is that he grew up uh, being an editor, just like Jock Turner had started out as an editor. And uh, I think Val Luton had maybe, I forget if Val had started out as an editor or not, or he always was a producer, but um, Robeson was the editor on cat people and on uh, the other Turner films. And as the editor, he created the bus sequence mm-hmm. in um, uh, cat people. He's the person who cut in the air brakes and caused that moment to work literally perfectly. So when you people give Turner credit for the bus, they are correct to do so. Turner shoots the shot. He lines everything up. But the sting, the end, the the, the capper, that was all Mark Robson. So Mark knew what he was doing, and that's why Val Luton fought to have him on the picture. And when RKO literally said, we will raise your salary and increase the budget of your film but you can't use Mark Robson. You have to use probably Edward Dimitrick or somebody else. And he said, nope, I promised this to Mark Robson. He's got a vision. I believe in it. We're going to finish it together. And then RKO was like, fine. And they take all that money and they um, uh, give it to somebody else. And off, off they go. I mean, again, an RKO A picture was anybody else's B picture. Let's be fair. But still, <laughs> I mean, he, he just bought a house. He had costs and he still gave it up to make the movie the way that he knew that he wanted to make the movie and that get to give Mark Robson the shot as, as the director. So again, it's not like Val Luton came in and redirected the shots or anything like that. It's not oh, no. this sort of Howard yeah. Hawks, Christian Nyby question, but <laughs> Val Luton apparently, and he would go through the screenplay one last time and he would write very detailed notes about how he wanted shots to be. And, where the dissolve should be and things like that. So he is not directing, but he is a omnipresent force behind the directing. He didn't show up on set a lot, uh, apparently. So he wasn't there nudging people. But I think if you're Mark Robson and you're going in to make your first movie, you know exactly how Mr. Luton would like you to direct it, please. Oh, sure. Yeah. Especially having worked with him before. Yeah. And, I, I love that Luton's fingerprints are all over all the movies of his that I've seen. Yeah. You know, you can't help but feel Luton's presence in Cat People. I walk with a zombie. I love the Leopard Man so much, and I can't help but feel Luton just looming over all of that. Yeah. And you feel it in this too. Mm-hmm. He's and it, it, it's a very personal film to him because it mm-hmm. takes place in Greenwich Village, where he and his wife had lived when he was just starting out. It's obviously a philosophical statement. Luton was not a optimistic guy. I think we can say that. <laughs> uh, and, and so the movie tracks that question. And it's got a lot of stuff that I think Val Luton really wanted to say on screen in it. And the the, the location and a lot of the sort of uh, literary uh, high notes. The, I suspect the fact that the restaurant is called Dante's is Luton's idea. Um, the John Dunn quote that opens and closes the film is definitely Luton's. We know that he found it and made them put a title card on. And that element, I, and again, you don't want to give him just overwhelming credit. But again, when uh, Mary is leaving the school and you hear them declining the French verbs, when she was going upstairs, they're declining amas, right? They're declining love uh, in Latin. And then she comes down and they're declining uh, to search in French. It's those little details. Yeah. 
and all of that builds into the movie and you don't notice it. Uh, I mean, this is like, I don't even know how much, how many times I've seen the movie more than once, certainly. And then this last watching, not even the watching with the commentary track, the one that I did without the commentary track to nail the movie in my head. It has taken me forever to notice that um, uh, Jacqueline's apartment is number seven. Mm. And she's just standing there next to the number seven for beginning of that shot. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh yeah, it works so well. Cause it's so natural. It has to be some number. And of course it's number seven and it's very, very good. Yeah. So much little things. And Luton was very famously concerned with those details and thought that they made a movie and that they made a B movie and a movie regardless of the budget. And he was right. I mean, all of the elements, the, the set dressing, the costumes, all of this, all the stuff that you would cheap out on if you were a different producer, he did not. Right. And that's, something else that I really appreciate about what he did. I'd love to read some of his original screenplays. I don't know if there's anything out there in print available to read, but I would just love to read some of these things to see Mm -hmm. after he's added his notes, after he's done his pass, just to read them and and see how much of it did dictate what we saw on the screen. The quotes that we see on the walls, the statues, uh, the the busts and some of the characters offices, uh, just Mm -hmm. just all of that. I want to see how much of that came from Luton himself and how much of it was, you know, just set dressing. Yeah. There is a very, uh, a literature heavy feel to a lot of his work anyway. A lot of callbacks to classic literature. And like you said, the quotes and even the, the slogan above the morgue. I don't know if that's <laughs> really what more, I don't spend a lot of time outside morgue, so I don't know, you know, <laughs> just, just the usual amount. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, just even have something like that up there. Uh, was, well, you, I, I guess if you go to a Morgan and they don't have a terrifying Bible passage, you should get a different morgue. <laughs> I'll keep that in mind. Right. I'll keep that in mind. I'll put when that in mind. When you're shopping around for a morgue, Go by, go by, do they have a terrifying Bible passage? That's important. <laughs> very, very important. There's a lot to really kind of digest and dis- dissect about this film. Before we get too far into it, though, Ken, there's something that we do on every episode of Monster Kid Radio, and I thought we'd do it again with you. We did it with you Hurrah! before. That's right. We've got the game, the classic five. I love the, the game. So for listeners who don't know, and I, I imagine pretty much everybody does at this point, but for any first timers, the classic five is a game that we play here on Monster Kid Radio. I have a deck of cards here. Each one of these cards has a this or that, which movie do you prefer style question. There are no right answers or wrong answers, really. And it's right answers are the answers I give. There we go. There we go. It's just a way to kind of talk more about monster movies with your fellow monster kids. Ken, are you ready to play? I'm ready. All right, here we go. Card number one. Oh, what is your favorite Bela Lugosi film? My favorite Bela Lugosi film is The Black Cat, the legendary, the magnificent Edgar G. Ulmer Black Cat. That movie is a surrealistic nightmare on every level. And just as the son of an architect, I love, love, love the fact that modernist architecture is the actual villain in the film. It's magnificent. (laughs) I love that movie. And fitting that it comes up this month. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I suppose that is true because it is the other Satan movie in this era. Good stuff. All right. Card number two. I did not plan this. What is your favorite Karloff Lugosi collaboration? Well, now here we are. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Having, having already said the black cat, I'm going to say the black cat directed by Edgar G. Ulmer. I guess second place is going to be Son of Frankenstein. 20 years ago in the barony of Frankenstein, a monster created by man stalked through the country, meaning and killing. In time, Frankenstein, maker of the monster, died. The monster disappeared. 
Now, after 20 years, the son of Frankenstein returns, and fear grips the village anew. A man tainted by the blood of his father can forget his human soul and carry on the diabolical work of the Frankenstein. As a man, I should destroy him. But as a scientist, I should do everything in my power to bring him back to conscious life. That's a movie that, again, I like a lot of it for the sets. And I think what I like best about that movie is the way that Basil Rathbone just seems so weirdly out of place in the universal horror, which is odd because, I mean, they're all the same directors. It's all the same set. He's part of the big empire. But in my mind, he is so not in horror land. He's in Sherlock Holmes land or Robin Hood land that when he goes to Visaria or Transylvania and runs into the monster, it just boggles my mind. It's just endlessly fascinating to imagine that it's Basil Rathbone and no one told him he was making a Frankenstein movie until about halfway through. And he's like, what? <laughs> and um, uh, Bella is actually very good in, in uh, Son of Frankenstein. He, I, I think people underrate him as an actor because they think of him as sort of this cheesy stage Dracula and uh, because Dracula itself is such a bad movie after the first act. And then he does sort of go into that death spiral with the heroin and the rest of it. But, you know, when he is on, when he is doing his job, like he is in Black Cat and like he is in Son of Frankenstein, he's very good. And even through all the makeup, the the Igor makeup, um, he's great. He's having a, a lot of fun with it, but he's not distracting you from the horror by over-chewing the scenery. He's really playing exactly into the tone of that film. And so Son of Frankenstein is a maybe a less than an ideally perfect movie and it's unheralded certainly. And it is, it really achieved its apotheosis when Mel Brooks remade it. But I think it's a, it's a pretty great movie and it's a pretty great uh, piece of work. It's one of my favorites. So yeah, we're going to get along just fine. Uh, okay. <laughs> Card number three. Uh, what's your favorite classic horror or suspense TV series? Classic horror or suspense TV show. Goodness me. Um, I mean, I was a twilight zone kid. And if I'm answering this in honesty, I'm answering like 98% of everybody else. Uh, I had, uh, with my paper route money, bought a tiny black and white TV that would fit on my bedside table. And I would go to bed and turn on the TV and we would get the Twilight Zone on the UHF or whichever station it was, channel 34. And I could watch the Twilight Zone in bed on a tiny black and white TV, which is to say the way everyone watched it in 1950-whenever. So I, I very much imprinted on Twilight Zone when I was imprinting on Lovecraft and uh, all of the other sort of adolescent horrors uh, in my life. So I think I would have to go long and hard. I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan of a lot of them, and mm -hmm. I like the ones that aren't overused just because they're not overused. So you get something like The Invaders is endlessly fascinating to me because I am coming to it as an adult and I'm looking at it sort of almost also as a historical document. But if you're talking just what gets me, Twilight Zone. It's hard to go wrong with the Twilight Zone. It really it is. has so many good, good episodes in that. And I'm a huge Night Gallery fan too, but yeah, it's really hard. When they go color, there's something, they lose something and not just Rod Serling loses control of the, of the show, which also happened. Yeah. Unfortunately. Yeah, it's true. All right. Card number four. What's your favorite Jekyll and Hyde movie? I think it's probably the Frederick March one. I don't, I don't have really a favorite Jekyll and Hyde movie because I think they've all been done. And in, this may be structurally, um, you can't do Jekyll and Hyde the way that Robert Louis Stevenson wrote Jekyll and Hyde anymore because it's not a mystery. When Stevenson writes it as a mystery and people are reading it in 1887 or whenever it was, they're like, 
well, this is a fast, oh my goodness, who would have seen that coming? Well, now literally everyone sees that coming. And I know I say that, you know, you can't spoiler a great uh, ending. You can't spoiler Othello uh, is my standard example. But I feel like no one involved is making Jekyll and Hyde as a mystery. And so it's very hard to make it satisfying. So I, I think the Frederick March, but again, the hammer Jekyll and Hyde is pretty great too. I don't, I don't like either of them so well that I, I would put them up against the other in a, in a face-to-face battle. Mary Riley, which is not a good uh, Jekyll and Hyde movie by any stretch is the closest to a good Jekyll and Hyde movie that we've had, you know, in the last half of the century, because it does do that mystery story. It tries to do it as sort of a, young woman in peril horror movie as opposed to a, you know, oh my goodness, Jekyll is turning into Hyde, whatever will happen uh, type movie. I don't think I've seen Mary Riley. That's the Julia Roberts, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it at least tries. It makes the effort. It says, all right, everyone knows Jekyll and Hyde. Let's see if we can make a Jekyll and Hyde movie that people don't know and can then respond to fresh. And I think that uh, Stevenson really kind of shot his, um, uh, shot his own story in the foot there by being so amazingly good at it in the novel. No, uh, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde for you when it comes to no, <laughs> with Bernie have, Casey. Come on. I, I have, I have, um, I, I, I admire what it was doing, but I think that it, uh, it perhaps, uh, should have been left undone by those people. Oh that man. I, I'm fascinated. I know I love Blackula and I know that was done kind of seriously, but yeah. like the Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde, Blackenstein, uh, you know, I love them probably for all the wrong reasons. Uh, yeah. but yeah, Dr. Black, Mr. Hyde where, yeah. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a movie. All right. Final card. Final question. Who else could have, or should have played a mad scientist? Who else could have, or should have, uh, let's see back in the day. You know what I'm going to say, um, in honor of our buddy, Tom Conway in this film, his brother, George Saunders, Ooh. who I think is, such an oily reprobate. And I love seeing him in every film that he's in. George Saunders makes an entrance that I get to the point of the film. Another point. I just love George Saunders and him as sort of a, a mad scientist could have really played up the amoral, uh, loosh. I'm just doing this to do this. It's sort of like Lawton in, um, uh, uh, Island of lost souls. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because Lawton, I think has some of that same, uh, or, or maybe it's, uh, George Saunders has some of that Charles Lawton energy, but Lawton as Moreau is sort of just, I exist. Nobody else exists. I'm just a sociopath. I'm just doing things. And I think Saunders could have done that, but with a sort of a smirk that uh, would have made it. Yeah. Oh, I'm, I'm making cat people, but you know why I'm doing it. Wink. (laughs) And I think that George Saunders would have brought a level of sort of um, uh, tangible goo uh, moral goo to, to the part if he'd been given, you know, something where he's building people out of corpses or out of animals or um, uh, experimenting on, on beautiful maidens. I mean, if George Saunders had just been showing up and you start with him in a lecture hall condescending to everybody, that would have been a great opener. Oh, yeah. um, I just feel like every great George Saunders moment, if you replay it in your head and you think he's got a brain in a jar somewhere, it just adds. <laughs> I like that. I will never be able to watch the early Falcon movies again now. Right. The, yeah, the Falcon is, it's got a crime lab just like, um, uh, doc Savage does where he <laughs> operates on people's brains. <laughs> I love it with that 1940s science, you know, that, that's, exactly. Oh, that'd be great. All right. Well, that was, 
<laughs> Nothing you can't do with a Van de Graaff generator and a Jacob's ladder, my friend. That's, that's what science. That's what that's what science teaches us. That's right. That's right. All right. Well, that was the classic five. I, I feel uh, sufficiently even more war- warmed up than before. Right. We couldn't get warmer. So let's talk about death. No. Uh, yes. So let's, <laughs> let's talk about nihilistic death and ultimate pessimism. Ultimate philosophical pessimism. So while I'm watching this movie this time around and it didn't occur to me the first time I saw it because back then I wasn't really kind of in it the way that I have been since when I'm watching it, I keep thinking this would make a really interesting role-playing game scenario. (laughs) Yeah. And I'm seeing Mary is like the investigator. You want the symbol and the cult and all this other stuff going on. And it has to be a call of Cthulhu role-playing game scenario because of the ending. But (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but I'm thinking, I'm, I'm watching this, I'm like, oh, you know, and I'm talking with Ken about it because he's a game designer guy that, I, you know, one of the game designers I know. And, huh, interesting. Yeah, I really kind of liked that. And, you know, the fate of some of the characters throughout the film, like the uh, the guy who decides mm-hmm. he's going to investigate what happened to the sister because he's curious. And, 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 and to get up the nose of the other private eye. I mean, that's one of the th- things that's great about this movie is no one does anything in this movie for unmixed motives, sure. right? I mean, Irvine August, yes, he takes pity on Mary. He wants to investigate and find out about her sister because she seems nice. And uh, But also, he just wants to put a thumb in the nose of that other detective right. who warned him off at the beginning. And Mary, we're thinking, well, she's good. What could be gooder than finding your sister? But the way that she acts during the thing, especially where she basically urges poor Mr. August to his death (laughs) by playing on his fear of being emasculated as a small man. And then her desire to find her sister is also maybe not pure and unmixed. And it begins, of course, because she's in financial Mm -hmm. trouble, not because she's ever cared enough to go visit her sister in New York. Um, And so there's a lot of great sort of no one here is good or evil, despite the sort of facile dialogue that um, uh, Dr. Judge spouts at the end about you've made the choice for evil. And it's like, well, Dr. Judge, you're one to talk, first of all. Um, uh, I but, saw what you did in Cat People. <laughs> I know better. <laughs> well, first of all, I saw what you did in this movie. What is what is it with you and sleeping with your patients, Dr. Judge? No wonder you've stopped seeing people. Good Lord disgust me on every level that's why it's so great that it's george saunders brother playing you um and, and so and even our buddy the poet jason who is as close to a moral figure i think as you get in the movie and even he is like driven by love but he's too weak to get the love that he deserves ward obviously is a duplicitous mm-hmm. weasel not only is he a lawyer but he like oh i didn't ever tell you that i was married to your sister I wonder why that slipped my mind. Oh, I know why it slipped your mind, Hugh Beaumont, you scumbag. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I wonder. I wonder. Yeah. So it's it's a it's a lot of levels of care, and again, for a seventy-one minute B picture that no one except Val Luton would have cared if they just everyone had been standard, if everyone had been normal, if it had just been I'm looking for my sister and I'm nice, but <laughs> Luton doesn't want that to be the movie because then the philosophical point of the movie, it becomes, Oh, isn't Jacqueline a freak as opposed to Jacqueline's just at the end of everybody's rope. 
we're all going to that mm-hmm. room. And there, there's just so much dimensionality to the people that the, the movie just, again, leaps off the screen at you. I forget what brought that up, why I went on that tear, but I think it's a valuable tear. Oh, I think tear. so, too. I think there's, uh, yeah. if the characters were a little bit more cookie cutter or, or less dimensional than they are, we wouldn't be able to have the philosophical discussions about what's really being said here and what we can really take away from the film that we do now. Uh, if Mary was just, mm-hmm. I'm going to go find my sister. Oh, it doesn't give you a chance to kind of really dive in and explore just what mm-hmm. the heck was she thinking when she was telling the poor investigator, Oh, I don't know. It's awfully dark. Maybe you should go. No. What are you yeah. doing? <laughs> you could just go down to the end of the <laughs> hall. Right. And it's, Oh, and it's such a good scene because it also demonstrates that she is a, a, an intelligent person who uses a tool as a tool. And again, that's maybe not a good thing to be, but she's not just a fainting non-entity. She's not just the person who's sort of shoved around by the men in the movie. And of course, when uh, uh, Gregory Ward tries to boss her around about drinking her milk and she you know, snaps back at him. She's like, don't tell me what to do. And that sort of level of individuality that's all the characters in the movie share that they're like, I'm going to decide, not you. I'm going to decide whether I'm a poet. I'm going to decide whether I should sleep with my patients, I guess. Um, everyone's making their own sorts of choices. And of course the movie does not present that as an unmixed good either. It's a really morally complex film. Again, given that it's an RKO B picture that was supposed to just be about murdering. <laughs> <laughs> They, they 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 gave him the title. They said that your next movie is called The Seventh Victim. Go make it. And he makes this in, instead and and. And it's an amazing In spite thing. of. Yeah, he was given just a handful of titles. Right, Here, yeah. go do this. And I don't know. Do you listen to the Secret History of Hollywood podcast? I do not. Uh, Derek, as you know, I consider podcasts a degenerate art form. Oh, okay. Okay. Nothing there, to do with them. Yeah, me too. Me too. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I would make an exception for the secret history of Hollywood. He does uh, two different podcasts, but the, the one specific one I'm referring to, and I'll send you a link and I'll put a link in the show notes as well. He does long form deep dives into Hollywood history and he does it in a very entertaining narrative way. And he has either just wrapped or is wrapping up a long series about Val Luton. Cool. And it's well, Val Luton deserves it. Yeah, it's really good. I've learned so much about Val Luton. Do you want to hear yeah. my ridiculous theory that so far uh, no one has been able to tell me I'm wrong? Sure. Okay. The closest thing to Val Luton that we have today is Kevin Feige. Okay. In that he is a producer who puts his absolute stamp on a film when he makes it. It is a very rare director that can get out of the Kevin Feige box that he is producing towards a personal vision namely of the Marvel comics that he read in the late eighties and early nineties. He is basically being given his head by a studio because he's making money. And so they won't pay attention as long as he keeps doing it. He's very like Val Luton, And you would have to, I think, look all the way back to Howard Hawks for another producer who is as important in the creative output as you have with Val Luton or with uh, Kevin Feige. Yeah, I'd say maybe somebody like Spielberg, but he's also a director, so he doesn't just, yeah. But as somebody who is just strictly yeah. a producer, wow, I had not considered that. When you first said it, I don't know if I hit mute or not fast enough, but I started laughing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> because I just, I was just like, the, the superhero guy? You know, which yeah. I love those the movies too, guy. don't get me wrong. But yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, don't think about the genre. Think about the personal stamp he puts on there. You're, yeah, you're spot on. I, I agree with yeah. you, sir. I'm a Marvel 
cinematic guy like everybody is a Marvel cinematic. I am not standing up on my soapbox. Um, Scorsese mm-hmm. is right, but it, you don't have to be mean about it. But <laughs> are people in 80 years going to be doing podcasts about uh, Thor the Dark World? I don't think so. What, what's a podcast? Yeah, exactly. Right. No. <laughs> they'll, they'll, they'll be doing nasal downloads or whatever they have then. But Val Luton is, is uh, making stuff that is, it has withstood the test of time and only gotten better as a result of people looking at it. I don't oh, I think so. Too. I don't know that that's going to be the same, even of the great Kevin Feige, who I give all the credit for the Marvel universe. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. So anyway, back to Val Luton away from my crazy notion. No, I, I, I think that's a really solid uh, comparison. Uh, Howard Hawks, Val Luton, Kevin Feige. I can't think of anybody else who was just strictly a producer. And, as and Hawks obviously was a director. director as well. So he sure, but, barely belongs in it, but his production stamp is so strong. Is why mm-hmm. I was thinking about him. Hmm. No, Val Luton had done a superhero movie. No, 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 no. Don't want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> no. no, Val Luton's uh, work, I think, is probably, of the three that we just mentioned, I'd say he's probably the most singular vision that I can I can feel. This is a Val Luton film. Yeah. Uh, and, and, yeah, like I said, the podcast that I've been listening to is amazing. If you want to learn more about Val Luton listeners, I'll direct you over there. Uh, the producer of the show is a great guy and does a lot of hard work. The seventh victim itself, uh, this film, we talk a little bit about how it starts. She goes off on a journey to, to find her sister, not because she misses her sister or she's getting returned mail, but because the checks to pay for her school stopped coming. Mm-hmm. And even that feels a little, yeah, she loves her sister. I get it. But how do you not know she's not been sending these checks for how long has it been going on? Six now? months. Right. Six months that no one has heard from her sister. So she goes on this journey to find her in New York. And we discover and meet all these other amazingly complex characters. Uh, The poet that you mentioned, Jason, Dr. Judd, of course, Tom Conway is just fantastic. Hugh Beaumont. Yes. (laughs) Playing Ward. Playing the other Ward. Ward. Not Ward Cleaver. Yeah, the other Ward. But still playing Ward. Except, you know, if uh, Ward Cleaver was out there sniffing around when Mrs. Cleaver uh, took ill. I really liked him in this. I, I get a kick out of seeing people like Hugh Beaumont or um, uh, the guy who played the professor in Gilligan's Island, Russell, Russell, or other. Russell Johnson. Yeah, I get a kick out of seeing these guys who did these campy, sitcom type shows in more serious productions. Uh, so seeing Hugh Beaumont in this, he, he's actually acting i mean he's not yeah. he's not the beaver's dad no and there are a few sh- a few times in this film a few shots where i had to double take because i thought well is that even him it doesn't even look like beaver's dad but it, of course it is mm-hmm. he just really kind of sunk into that character of gregory ward who conveniently forgets to mention that he's married when he meets the pretty girl yeah. and, he, and he has and he has no good explanation i mean he tries and the, one of the fun things about this movie is that you because the movie was chopped up there are things that maybe it would have been made more clear if we'd seen the longer version, but I think that would have made it a worse movie because Gregory Ward having this sort of weirdly reclusive part of his past, the fact that we can't really, even at the end of the movie, put together a timeline of exactly what happened to Jacqueline. All of that is very real feeling. I mean, if you've ever seen a true crime show, you don't know anything about someone once they sort of go off the the, the board and they start having adventures that lead you to be on a true crime show. 
and no one ever knows everything. And they're sort of, well, this is our best guess. And you have that same sort of response to this, but it's not all tied up neatly. And even Gregory Ward's romantic feelings for Mary, well, it's a absolutely conventional through line that one assumes had to be in the movie. It's left with this sort of weird, uh, uh, echoey bit in it. And you just have to wonder that, you know, sure, they like each other now, but in two years when the pheromones have worn off, is she going to say, hey, about my sister? (laughs) (laughs) What exactly were you doing? Yeah, right. I never got the impression that he was completely divorced from the the group of of satanists basically i never you know i always got the impression that he he knows a lot more than he's letting on and he's not going to tell mary at all right yeah he just (laughs) doesn't want her to be involved in any of it and again that's because i think that if you're going to maybe start investing this movie with a little more gravity but again the movie backs you up if you do that he's a little ashamed of new york and of his life and he, he sort of pals around with dr judd more as a well, at least I'm not this bad <laughs> sort of way, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm not completely contemptible, but I am paying Dr. Judd basically blackmail money to keep my wife hidden. <laughs> That's yeah. what's going on. Um, uh, and it's just that scene with the two of them in the office. And these are two of the ostensible heroes of the film, right? Mm-hmm. These are mm-hmm. the good guys doing that. That's just disgusting. And so for <laughs> for Ward... I, I think everyone in this movie has this sort of weird connection and only the, the lovely Italian couple that, that uh, run Dante's are sort of immune from the awfulness of New York city, that everything else in New York city is, is sort of being indicted as well. It's very much that noir urban nightscape. Once you're off the sidewalk, you are out of the decency. You're, you're not living in the suburbs like a nice person should, although this is before suburbs, but you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. The, the restaurant seems to be like a safe space and that's about it. And even that, of course, it's named Dante's. So right. at no pl- at no time are you ever thinking, oh, the Dante's, that's a name that doesn't have any weird, horrible connotations. And even though the paintings are Dante and Beatrice, it's still, well, we are on the pit of hell. We know that we're on the lip of hell. That's happening. So <laughs> it's a, so it's it, even the even the freaking lovely Italian people who, by the way, will break into your tenants into their tenants' apartment, <laughs> um, are um, uh, are not quite immune from what's going on. And uh, when the the woman uh, who runs the restaurant brings Jason over to the table of of Mary and uh, and and Ward, she knows she ha- would have to know that Jacqueline. Because she said she saw him brought in on limousine with a with a rich man, and that probably that was Ward, and so she has to know something's up, and so she's bringing Jason over as this third wheel to try and ruin their their dinner. With although she passes it off and saying, "Oh, you make them laugh with your funny poetry and your failure," <laughs> um, and then there's just a there's a lot of good stuff going on in that movie, and the the notion that everyone hates the city and doesn't want any part of it. That's conventionally noir, and the, but at the beginning, when she's leaving uh, Highcliff, the literal place of, sa- of sanctity, and Gilchrist says, "Oh, don't come back, <laughs> don't come back here. This place is a crypt. This is a mausoleum. You can't come back. You have to live." And that's a great moment, even though it's weirdly counter to what actually the movie is about. 
but the notion that there is no safe place in the world. There is no good place in the world. The instant you pay attention to what's going on, you're screwed. <laughs> and it's a great thing about the movie. Yes. As soon as you realize what's happening, uh, you uh, rent a room above a hotel and <laughs> mm-hmm. string up a noose. Uh, yep. Get yourself <laughs> a room with a chair and a noose. Yep. Yep. What did you think about the shower scene? It's kind of amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's obviously something that uh, Alfred Hitchcock watched before Psycho. Yeah, Hitchcock or Block. Somebody had to have seen yeah. it. it. It's a really interesting precursor to Psycho. Nobody gets killed in the shower. I mean, right. spoiler. But, I, I played the spoiler warning at the beginning. But somebody gets threatened. So, and it's <laughs> it's Mary's response to that is very um, kind of low-key. I, I personally probably would be freaking out if some woman that does not live in my building... Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, showed up yeah. sort of threatening you in the shower yeah while, while you're showering she just starts barking these threats at you yeah it's quite a thing it it was fascinating to watch knowing you know the history of shower scenes with psycho and that sort of thing mm-hmm. like wow this this really is potentially the precursor to all that and again all props to val luton yeah and the, and it, the way that it tells you a lot about Esther Reddy. I mean, obviously, it also tells you about um, uh, Mary because she, you know, doesn't back down. Uh, she's frightened, but she's not put off her course. Mm-hmm. Um, and and again, in most movies, you yeah, get the good guy gets threatened and then continues, and it's pro forma. In this you feel like it's a real scene that really matters, but it portrays Reddy as this sort of person who just feels totally entitled, mm-hmm. right? Uh, I want a cosmetics company. I'm going to take it. I want to walk into the shower and bully someone. I'll do that. And that sort of level of, um, uh, I don't want to say dominance, but I want to say uh, self-aggrandizement that is, as we discover, sort of core to the paladist movement. And to have it brought out with Miss Reddy, I think that's a strong way to put those notes in, that sense of, yeah, I own this. I'm entitled to it. I should take it. It's a very... uh strong sense of like you said entitlement this this kind of she's protected or or enabled by whatever it is that she and her group do the paladist movement is that a real thing i i don't know well real is a strong word okay there was in fact a masonic movement called the paladist society okay uh in the 1890s a crusading journalist if that is the word i want and i probably want neither of those words uh, launched a expose of the same movement within the uh, Catholic church saying a true expose of the paladists. And he had a woman uh, named Diana Vaughn, who was supposed to have been a real life paladist who was uh, victimized and had reformed. Uh, there was going to be a big presentation where she would tell her story. So all the press in France is there and he gets up and he says, ha, ah, I ran a scam on you. There's no such thing. And then uh, no further questions. And that uh, was a giant sensation uh, and put the phrase paladist into people's heads. Uh, So the notion is that the paladists are a sort of theistic Satanist movement that believe in both God and the devil and that they've picked, which is what they are in the, in the film. And that notion exists. It's out there in the, in the sort of uh, meme stream. And if you're a script writer doing research into Satanists, Maybe you run across Leo Taxel's book, or maybe you run across a, a popularization of, of one of Leo Taxel's books, and you say, Paladist, that's a good name. And apparently, uh, the screenwriter, because there was two screenwriters, there was Bodine, and there was, uh, oh... Charles O'Neill. 
O'Neill, right? Mm-hmm. And Bodine apparently gets a telegram or a letter from Val Luton that says, your first draft is terrible. We're not using it. We're using a different draft. You're working with Charles O'Neill. Oh, and by the way, see if you can uh, get to any Satanist meetings. <laughs> What? Which is the sort of letter we all have all dreamed of getting from our boss, by the way. Um, <laughs> and so he goes to RKO in New York and says, Val Luton just said I should go to Satanist meetings. And then they all laughed at him. And then one of them said, oh, you know what? I think I know of a Satanist group on the West Side. Let me put you in touch. Because that's apparently how life worked in 1943. You would just go to Rolodex under S and... Uh, <laughs> And so maybe the real life Satanist group that he went and, and hung out with briefly uh, were also calling themselves paladists after the Leo Taxil expose, quote unquote. And you forever remember which executive is like, oh, hey, I know somebody because you never want to go out to lunch with him again. Right. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Hmm, you certainly don't want to um, uh, leave your wife with them, apparently. <laughs> That's a lesson that we've learned. And, and Bodine says that the real life Satanists were just nice old people. Uh, who knitted and crocheted and cast spells against Hitler. And that's what they were doing at the meeting that he was there. And he's, and, he, and later on, much later, he's recalling it. And he says, it's much like the group in Rosemary's baby, mm-hmm. uh, that they're just nice old people on the West side, but they're also, you know, Satanists and they're casting spells against Hitler because apparently Hitler was a different kind of say, I don't know, whatever they, yeah. they, they were Satanists, but that doesn't mean they hold with Nazism. So, Good for them, I guess. Yeah, it's uh, they're good. See, I yeah. don't know. Yeah, whatever. We can't we can't be parsing that at this at this stage of the game. Well, yeah, and it, in this film, I mean, the questions of good versus evil, I think, are pretty vague. Anyway, yeah, they're trying to insert a killer self, but they're not going to do it themselves because they don't believe in violence. So because of our strangely contradictory bylaws, I think they even say that when our founder wrote the strangely contradictory code of our order. And by the way, how come Ben Bard isn't in everything? <laughs> As Mr. Brune, the the, the, the chief uh, paladist, mm-hmm. he's so good. Oh, he's great. He's like Magic Bogart. He's great. Uh, even in that last uh, sort of not particularly great scene where, you know, they feel bad because Dr. Judd of all people says the Lord's Prayer. Right. And by the way, how Dr. Judd does that without his tongue blackening in his throat, I'll never know. But... <laughs> That, that, that great underlighting where he's standing there saying, who knows what is wrong or right? If I prefer to believe in satanic majesty and power, who can deny me? And he's got that cool underlighting and you're like, man, I want to see a series of Mr. Brune movies now where he goes oh, out wow. messes with people. Oh, that'd be fantastic. And it's so good. He was easily one of my favorite characters in this, even though he's not in it very much, just because he's, you're just drawn to him. Yeah. He's just got this this presence and this delivery, this way of being on screen. Uh, as far as the rest of the movement, the group goes, they're not doing anything, quote unquote, evil per se, I suppose. I mean, outside of the, hey, you got to kill yourself, but right. which isn't really good. They, but, they then, you know, send someone to, to, to stab uh, uh, Jacqueline. Well, that's true. Yeah, they she do doesn't send a, kill herself. Yeah, they do send a, a guy after her, yeah. which, again, I thought you weren't supposed to be violent, but yep. okay. As long yeah, as you're not doing it, I guess. Yeah, they, they just hired a guy. <laughs> which that sequence is so well done. That, that's where yeah. the Luton bus is, is in this sequence mm-hmm. here. You, know, you you watch a Val Luton film now and you look for the Luton bus or you mm-hmm. listen for it, you know, inspired by the cat people scene that makes me jump every single time, <laughs> even though I know so it's coming. Yep. <laughs> so the yeah, Luton the, bus scene happens and, in and here. 
and he puts the bus in so early that you're like, oh, okay, that was that was our bus moment. And it's like, nah, you just think that was your bus moment. Right. It's like, well, that's going to be a short scene. Oh, wait a minute. Yeah. Wait a minute. Yeah, that's a good walk. Um, the And the, again, the great scene where she's in the crowded streets and no one can talk to her and she can't talk to anyone that we saw sort of prefigured with Amy, with uh, Amy, with Mary in the, um, uh, in the subway where, you know, there's just the, the drunks and the sleeping guys. And then the conductor doesn't believe her. Uh, so we have that sort of, you know, the subway is not safe. The streets aren't safe. Nowhere is safe. Well, it goes back to what you said earlier too, about how the city itself is just, once it gets you, it's gotcha. You're, you're, yep. you're done. And that's even pretty much spelled out by Dr. Judd when he explains that Jacqueline has spent so much time inside. She can't stand the streets. Right. Yeah. That well, she's, uh, she's, she's so nervous. And it's like, yeah. And the it's thing a- is, of course, anything that Judd says is like instantly dubious. <laughs> Yeah, like, that's true. Are you saying that you've got her hooked on pills? Is that what you're actually saying, Dr. Judd? Is this, you know, or is this just a, an excuse you give as to why you can't take her to parties? So mm-hmm. she doesn't like the streets. You know, <laughs> I, I keep my mistress locked in a building that only I know where it is. Yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> she hates the streets so much. But again, it's it's it, it's within the line of, of what we see about Jacqueline. So that mm-hmm. it's not that he's automatically lying; it's that he's probably might be lying, right. and it's a great element in the in the story. And then you know, certainly when she does go on the streets, she is very nervous. But this is because she knows someone's coming to kill her. Mm-hmm. So it's a a fascinating story. And then when we sort of see the future of Jacqueline when she meets Mimi in the hall, and Mimi's like, "I'm tired of running. I'm tired of being scared." Of, of death. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go out into the streets. And it's yeah, like, right? oh my God, Mimi. Don't you know what's coming for you? Right. Exactly. It's so, it's such a, it, oh, it's such a, a bit. And to, again, I think that that was a last minute Luton ad, that he just says, we got to use the cat people lady again. <laughs> well, she was great. I mean, she, he does use a few people a couple of times. Uh, mm-hmm. Jane Brooks, you know, Jacqueline, she was in something right. else. Uh, even, even, uh, Mr. Bruin, uh, Ben Bard was in something else. It was in the leopard man. Right. Uh, but, uh, the Mimi character, we, we did see her earlier in the movie at the very beginning when they get to that house or to mm-hmm. that home. And she's like a neighboring tenant and we hear her kind of coughing and hacking up. Yep. So, you know, something's a little wrong and she even gets a look or two cast her way, but that's it. So it's a nice little seating of what we're going to have at the yep. end. And, and that she's in room eight sort of tells you what's going to happen to her. So yeah, <laughs> the sequel, the eighth victim where she's yep. just out partying all day. Yeah. Yep. She's a victim of tuberculosis and yeah. poverty yeah. and Satanists. Yeah. Well, you know, yeah. I, I mean, don't know which order, you know, <laughs> it's such a, it's such a story. It's such a movie. It's a great film. I, I don't know how much more we can talk about the ending without really ruining or spoiling the ending. I don't want to spoil it. If listeners it's, have not seen this film, be prepared. It's amazing. Yeah, so good. And so true, right? It's it like I said, one of the great things about the the sort of paraclimax where Jason mm-hmm. and Judd go to the Satanist meeting and say, you are bad people and um, uh, that you're little pathetic cowards, which is closer to true. And then they stalk off and they're like, we, uh, I guess we are. That sort of doesn't ring, and you're like, well, if that's our ending, I I feel angry, and then the ending happens, and you're like, okay, I forgive you again, Fal Luton. Mm-hmm. This was one last sort of curlicue of conventional 
morality before the end of the movie happens. Yeah, there, there is this shift in uh, character point of view and point of view of the film, really, because mm-hmm. for most of the movie, we're following Mary and what's going on with her trying to find Jacqueline. But at that point, we do shift or before that, even we do shift to Jacqueline's point of view and yeah. how she views what's happening around her and in, in the world and what her place is or isn't in it. And normally I have problems with like these weird point of view changes that just kind of come out of the blue, but this felt right. Mary's story was done. It's now let's go wrap up Jacqueline. Yeah. The movie's about Jacqueline in the same way that Laura is about Laura, I guess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and then we have that moment where we find Jacqueline. We have the weird opener where she does the, you know, silence and then runs away. And then we see her again. And then we finally were in the room with her. We, we, we see her being hectored over the poison. We find out a little more about uh, her relationship, maybe with Francis. And then she, we, she does the great Luton walk. So it, it's, it's not quite midway through the movie, but it's maybe two thirds of the way through the movie that we do make that switch. Mm-hmm. But like you say, part of it is because the characters are so well doubled for each other, mm-hmm. right? That maybe we're at a point in the movie where now that Mary has been ensnared by Mr. Uh, Gregory Ward and fallen in love with the city and, and gotten the job and is going to be part of this cycle. We just flip over to Mary's future slash darker slash more aware self. And so we are seeing the same viewpoint, the person who quests and then finds, and then what happens after you find hmm. right. That yeah. Mary and Jacqueline are sort of in that way, the same character in the same way that like, um, uh, uh, Jason and Judd and Ward are all sort of aspects of the same male character, right? That you can be weak and feckless, you can be disgusting and rational, or you can be halfway in between, like uh, Hugh Beaumont. Yeah, uh, and I think that sums up the movie. I mean, almost everything about the movie. It, it yeah. really, I, I don't know what else to say here. <laughs> We've been talking for over an hour now about this film, and I feel like left unchecked, we could probably talk for a few hours more because yeah, it's yeah. a masterpiece that's it, that's it really how you is. can do it and and there's so many things we have barely even touched on like just the the awesomeness of library detective work by a poet again it goes back to that whole investigation thing that that's why i thought hey call of cthulhu role-playing game yeah, scenario very much very strong we, we go hit the books we go to the library we investigate we research we don't go in guns blazing yeah it's just a it's it, it, um and there is a gigantic lesbian uh subtext that we have left pretty much undiscussed, but is another very major part of the, of the, of the film as shot. Um, again, you can, I guess, go back and forth as to whether or not Val Luton meant it to be there. But I think we have established that if something's in a Val Luton film, he probably meant it to be there. So if I, if I remember right, I believe his aunt may have been a lesbian, yeah. uh, or, so, or, or a grandma, a relative again, was. He, so. he lived in Greenwich village. It's not like oh, he yeah. was, you know, not knowing lesbians at the time. Right. And then he went to Hollywood where again, there was, uh, uh, ample opportunity to meet them and and portray them in sympathetic ways as opposed to as code for evil right, the way that exactly. say uh, Dracula's daughter uh, does but this is this is a more nuanced story uh, first of all because everyone is horrible but uh, second of all uh, because it's not that simple it's it's not just that oh uh, she's a lesbian therefore she's bad it's like well there's a lot going on and that lesbianism is just the same as, as heterosexual romantic love and that is doomed and terrible. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I mean, you can even see some of that in cat people. You know, you can yeah. see some of that here. And like you said, if it's in a Val Luton film, it wasn't an accident. Right. He meant, it, he meant it to be there. We haven't talked about the Roy Webb score, which is surprisingly good. I mean, oh, I say gosh. surprisingly, that's unfair, but it is. It's surprisingly good. And it stops when it needs to, mm-hmm. which is another weird thing. I don't, I, I, I guess that happened a lot more in the 30s and 40s than it does now anyway, but it is a weird thing where it's like, nope, we're this movie, we're now about footstep. Well, and it adds I'm gonna it listen adds, to, your, to your music, Roy Webb. Keep it going. Yeah, I mean, it adds to the the suspense, right? I mean, the the producer, the director, yeah. the editor, all of them knew when to let the music go and when to pull it away. And what Roy Webb does, Roy did most of Luton's films, didn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah it looks like he did. Um, this is just Wikipedia answering, not Ken, but it looks like he did Cat People. He did uh, I Walked with a Zombie, Leopard Man. I'm not looking at all of them. He did a ton of stuff for RKO because there's a bunch of Falcon movies in there. I suspect he was like the RKO, one of their house composers. And uh, you were lucky enough to get Roy Webb if you were Val Luton. And then, again, I assume Val and and Webb had ideas and discussions. And Luton was like, for this one, everything should be sort of dissonant minor key chords. Uh, Don't play any uh, romantic strings. If I hear a romantic violin swell, I will come punch you. And so Roy Webb is like, you got it, boss. Music that you hate. Ready to go. <laughs> it's good stuff. I I, yeah. I think there has been a release of some of his music on CD. I'd have to double check. But if you haven't listened to Roy Webb's music just by itself, listeners, I recommend it because it's really good. It's it, in places. It's beautiful. In other places, it's like, oh, making you feel uncomfortable. It's a guy that we don't talk enough about. I feel like when we talk about classic horror composers, we always go to like the, the Salters or the Steins or a web right up there. Great stuff. Yeah. Good stuff. Really good stuff. So there's tons more to talk about. And I'm sure at some point in the future, you and I will meet in person again. And this will come up again because how can you not talk about this film? Absolutely. This is, this is one of those films that once it's in you, you, you want other people to have seen it and to love it and to appreciate it for the just remarkable document that it is. And again, this is not to say this is a better film than Casablanca, No, but, but you absolutely understand how Casablanca could be made in 1942, right? Sure. Casablanca comes off. Yes, I get it. Everything about this movie is an understandable decision. It's in line with Hollywood of the era. It completely makes sense. Once you've gotten past the notion that people believe Humphrey Bogart is a romantic lead, you can buy anything. The uh, Casablanca is a very conventional film. Seventh Victim is remarkable because it is so unconventional. Yeah, it's definitely not. Everything that it does and everything that it's about and all the things we've talked about, about character and music and set design are so not what you would expect out of Hollywood in 1943, out of an A picture in 1943, much less an RKO B backlot. It's a singular expression of a creator which is not something that you see very often in movies. Movies at their best are collaborations between a lot of creators and at their worst are horrible committee made melange. But this is a thing that is working very much against the grain of Hollywood and against the strain of Hollywood. And I don't think you could maybe make it now in, in, in Hollywood, much less, you know, 1943. So it's a remarkable achievement. And again, it's not a better film than Casablanca, but it is a harder film to have made and to have made nearly perfectly. 
than yes. Casablanca was. At the beginning of this, I said that with Val Luton, the most recent Val Luton film I've seen is typically my favorite at that time. Mm-hmm. And, and there may be another movie that I watch by Val Luton and say, hey, that's my favorite now. But I right. don't think there will be another time when I'm watching a Val Luton film and I'm not affected the same way. Yeah. I think this movie is probably the most affecting of the Val Luton films that I've seen. And I'm going to be mulling it over. And, and weirdly, lot. I think a lot of that is because there's no supernatural element yeah. or yeah. a very small one. Right. And so you can't just say, well, yeah, in the world of cat people, that could happen. But in our world, I know that love is good. And it's like, no, this is our world. And love is not good. Nothing is good. Everything is terrible. Get yourself a room with a noose. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great way to end this conversation. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Ken, this has been a blast. I need to have you on more often because it's just fun to chat with you man i am i am down with that man you are the master and uh no. you're terrific and i love being on the show so how do people find you do you still do the podcast with robin i still do do the podcast with robin ken and robin talk about stuff drops every friday at ken and robin talk about stuff.com or wherever you hunt your podcasts down uh we are on all of them please like rate back us on the patreon if you've got extra money sloshing around uh, and then also I'm on the Twitters at Kenneth Height and on the Facebooks. It's harder to follow someone on Facebook because of the algorithm. But if you work very, very hard, you will never miss a single golden syllable of my social media output. <laughs> because this episode is coming out in January. Is there anything in early 2020 book wise or game wise people can look forward to? Um, I believe in January you will hopefully be looking forward to and being tantalized and titillated with. Uh, Promises of Hellenistica, which should be kickstarting in the first part of 2020. So uh, Hellenistica, 5th edition, uh, Dungeons Dragons compatible setting, uh, set in the good parts version of the 3rd century BC. Elephants, cat people, flying triremes, uh, giant mechanical men, skeleton. I mean, you're listening to this podcast, you've seen Jason and the Argonauts, you have it imprinted on your corneas, Jason and the Argonauts, the movie, the role-playing game. Call it that. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. If the Kickstarter campaign has launched by the time this episode goes out, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Fantastic. Otherwise, there'll be links to uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff and anything else you've got going on at the time. I'll, I'll make sure I include it there. Ken, thanks again for being part of Monster Kid Radio. Really appreciate oh, it. Man, I'm, I'm over the moon to be part of the Monster Kid Radio extended cast. <laughs> the extended universe the, the right. shared the, 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 uh, the, 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 the extended podcast universe I'm just the Mimi I just show up you know uncredited <laughs> sounds good <laughs> to deliver Serbian prophecy or nihilist philosophy on command all while wearing an awesome Hawaiian shirt there we go <laughs> alright there we go <laughs> Well, if you haven't gotten your fill of Ken Height just yet, head over to Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff.com. That is the home of the Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff podcast. And you can listen to Ken and Robin Laws talk about, well, stuff. Go check them out. Let them know that you heard Ken here on Monster Kid Radio. Ken, thank you for being part of the show. I really appreciate it. Uh, this was a lot of fun. The seventh victim. Man, it is one that I am thinking about. I've been thinking about it for a while after I saw the film and then we talked about it. It's still something that I'm thinking about. It's one of those films that is going to stick with me for a very, very long time. Ken, thanks for bringing it to my attention and thanks for being part of Monster Kid Radio in 2020. The fear of the year is here. <laughs> <laughs>
Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, a monster he could not control, have taken over his very soul. A screaming demon rages inside, turning him into Mr. Hyde, an unstoppable black Superman. Super strong, supernatural, and super bad. His punch can topple a skyscraper. His kick can split the earth in two. More destructive than an earthquake. Mightier than a tidal wave. A one-man disaster area. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, when you're seeing what ain't, you're looking at a haint. Shot full of lead and he still ain't dead. Jump back, Jack, for your skull is cracked. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, starring Bernie Casey, Rosalind Cash, Stu Gillum, directed by William Blackyeller Crane. Dr. Black and Mr. Hyde, rated R, under 17, not admitted without parents, so bring your mama, she'll like it too. Welcome to Planet 8. Every two weeks, the crew at Planet 8 Podcast explores the many worlds of science fiction, fantasy, superheroes, monsters, and more. We cover the latest movies and TV shows, as well as old favorites too. Yeah, like Planet of the Apes. It's a man Hey guys, don't forget Star Trek. Fascinating. Or classic monsters like King Kong, Creature from the Black Lagoon, or Godzilla. If it's nerdy or geeky, we'll probably be talking about it. So why don't you tune in and check us out? You can find us on iTunes or other fine podcast providers. Come join the conversation at our website, planet8podcast.blogspot.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook. This is Planet 8 Podcast, signing off, end transmission. Vampires, werewolves, zombies. Yes, these things are real, but fortunately for those of us who can afford him, so is Mark Temple. And he's good, real good. He's a former FBI agent turned freelancer with the knowledge and skills to eliminate your monster problems and his rates are negotiable. Monster Hunter for Hire, the first volume of the Supernatural Solutions, The Mark Temple Case Files, is now available in both ebook and paperback. Go to tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple to buy your copy of Derek M. Cook's latest book. Read about Mark Temple, the experienced professional now available to rid you of your supernatural, ghoulish, and monstrous pests. That's tinyurl.com slash monsterhuntertemple. And don't worry, Mark Temple is discreet. So that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thank you for listening. Thanks for being part of the audience and for retweeting tweets and sharing the posts on Facebook and basically just spreading the word. If you want to know anything else about Monster Kid Radio, you can find me at monsterkidradio.net where you're going to find links to everything that we talked about in this episode, in the show notes, up to and including the link to the podcast, The Secret History of Hollywood. This is the podcast that I mentioned to Ken that recently, I believe, concluded its run about Val Luton. Get in there and subscribe and download the episodes now because he does not leave the episodes online indefinitely. He does pull them down. And then after that, the only way to listen to the old podcast is to pick him up through Audible or some other method. So get in there now, download those episodes 
you won't be sorry. They are really, really good. Adam, the man behind the podcast, does a great job with what he's doing. It's kind of embarrassing because it is so good, which makes what I do pale in comparison. The man is the man. So go check that out. Uh, That is over at attaboyclarence.com. That is the home of the secret history of Hollywood, as well as the Attaboy Clarence podcast and the Talking Pictures TV podcast. I already mentioned uh, Ken and Robin talk about stuff. That podcast, that link is in the show notes. I'll also make sure there are Amazon affiliate links to Ken's projects and products available through Amazon. If you want to pick up any Ken Hyatt material, literature, books, gaming material, whatever, please consider picking it up through the Amazon link because we, as an affiliate, do get a little bit of scratch back from Jeff Bezos and it helps keep the podcast going as does your support over on Patreon. Later this month, I'm going to be revamping the Monster Kid Radio Patreon. So if you want to be a patron of MKR or want to continue to be a patron of MKR, well, stay tuned. More information is coming. What's coming before that though? is next week's episode where we're going to talk about another classic film that does deal with the devil talking about the movie, the black cat. Normally I would insert a trailer right here, but there is no surviving trailer as far as I can tell of the 1934 film, the black cat. So I'm just going to tell you it's awesome. I can't wait to talk about it next week with Scott Morris from the Disney Indiana podcast and the plan nine by nine podcast. I actually recorded that conversation with Scott this morning, less than 24 hours ago. I discussed it with him, recorded it, and I can't wait to drop that into the feed next week. If you have any thoughts about The Black Cat or The Seventh Victim or any other movies that would fall within the Monster Kid Radio wheelhouse that would have that satanic or devil influence, I'd love to hear about it. Drop me a line at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or... Call and leave us a voicemail at 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. I'm excited for what the new year is going to bring to Monster Kid Radio and to you. If you have any monsterific plans or resolutions that you'd like to share with the other Monster Kid Radio listeners, well, send that in and we'll play it on a future episode. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Professor Frenzy's Bedtime Stories is copyright Jerry Green, 2020. And the song Psycho Nude is copyright Wood Surfers. 2018. You can find it on the album Wood Surfers over at woodsurfersbrazil.bandcamp.com. There will be a link in the show notes. Check them out and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name is Derek M. Cook. Talk to you everybody next week. Ciao. Ciao.